Please turn with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. You can also follow along on page 8 of your bulletin. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with righteousness and justice from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is the word of the Lord. This past Advent, <clears throat> we've been looking at unique qualities. We call them offices of Jesus. And so we've been looking at Jesus Christ as prophet and priest and king and Isaiah chapter 9 is probably the most famous passage about Jesus Christ as king. And it's really a great way to enter into Christmas as we look at it, as we peer into this and reflect together on it. This passage is going to tell us three things. One, why we need Christmas. Two, what it really is. And lastly, how it shapes us. Why we need, why we need it, what it is, and how it shapes us. First, we're going to look at why do we need Christmas Notice how many references there are to fear and darkness and distress. Verse 1, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. Verse 2, the people were walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. In other words, darkness by nature draws out our most fundamental fears. It's like a metaphor. But then there's Christmas. A new light has dawned the coming of Christ, the coming of the king. And the coming of Christ, the coming of this king, sheds light on every part of our lives, the entire world, which means we can now live without fear. We can now live without fear. Fear of what? What is the gloom? What is the distress that Isaiah is speaking about? He's the author in verse 1. It's death. It's death. Isaiah uh, chapter 9 was written like Hebrew poetry. I'm going to tell you, if you want to understand Hebrew poetry... You need to know that there are parallels in each stanza, just about every verse. The first half of each stanza in Hebrew poetry uh, lays out a point, and that second half then follows up with an elaboration of that first point as a parallel, which shares with you, teaches you, uh, shares with us a little bit more of an understanding of what the author is actually trying to say. So in verse 2, people were walking in darkness, but the author doesn't really tell us what that darkness is until you get to the second half of that stanza, which says that they're living in the land of the shadow of death. Literally in Hebrew, 
the people were walking in death darkness and they were distressed. In other words, we all live in, a shadow, in the shadow of death. Another way of saying that is death casts its shadow on everything in our lives. It's our greatest struggle. Now, there are people in this room that are saying, well, I mean, it's different now. Those were the ancient times. Back then, people were dying all the time. They were dying of disease and war. Uh, they, they They lacked science and technology and education. They died very, very young, which is why they had so many children and so on and so forth. But scholars will tell you today that we live in a time, that we live in a society that is more haunted by death, that is more darkened by death, than any civilization that ever existed in the past. How? Why? It's because death is still undefeated. Scholars will tell you today that we live in the, in the first civilization in history that has lost the certainty of anything after death. You see, every other civilization in history believed that life is harsh, life is short, but it's temporary that there was the possibility of a greater life, a greater love, a greater joy, another world, and this world is a mere uh, preparation for that. So the ancients, the older societies, they were not dominated by the fear of death. Why? Famous commentator once said, he kind of said it like this. He lays it out like this, and I'm kind of paraphrasing. Imagine you have a day off. And so on your day off, you're going to do something restful. You're going to do something fulfilling in your life. You're going to go for a run in the morning. Uh, you're, going to, you're going to go to a cafe. You're going to have, uh, get your favorite coffee while you're reading your favorite book. And then you're going to meet your, that best friend that you have, that great friend at your favorite brunch spot. All these things that give you fulfillment during the day. But the night before, somebody breaks into your house puts a gun to your head. I know this is a Christmas sermon, right? They put, he puts a gun to his head, your head, and, and he says to you, you're going to die tomorrow. I'm going to take your life, and you can't negotiate with me. There's no pleading. There's, you can't buy your way out. But I want to be fair tomorrow because it's your day off. I'm going to give you the remainder of the night and the, all day tomorrow to enjoy these very last hours of your life, and then I'm going to take it from you. So go on your run. Go get that coffee. Don't forget that. Don't forget that book. Don't forget that appointment. Don't forget that brunch. How would you respond? Now, this is absurd, but you're probably going to say, well, I'm not going to enjoy that run. Not anymore. I'm not going to enjoy that coffee. I'm not going to enjoy that book or even that friend over brunch. Well, why not? And here's why. Because all those things that used to bring you happiness... Death has a way of rendering those things meaningless. That's a problem. Why? Because we're told today that we need to cram every bit of happiness, every ounce of all of our desires into this particular life. And so we're desperate to cure any sense of loneliness. We want to fulfill every desire for love or sex, romance. Get rid of every bad feeling. Fulfill every craving, every longing for meaning. And so we've, this society, this generation, they say is not resilient. They say this generation is not elastic. Now look, just think for a second. If this life is all there is and there's nothing after, then there's nothing, nothing in life has meaning. Nothing in life has a purpose. And so there's no certainty in life, and death and darkness is really your only destiny. That's the end. 
That's it. We're all living with the shadow of death cast over us. You see that? Ernest Becker, in, um, in 1975, he won the Pulitzer Prize for uh, his, really his most important book, The Denial of Death. And he basically says this, the reason why our Western culture is so obsessed with sex and romance and pleasure and physical beauty and wealth and materialism is because of the shadow of death. Now, he's a secular author, and yet he says, because we don't believe in life after death, there's this great urgency and a great, uh, almost a frenetic quality in our lives to find worth only in what is visible, only in what is material, and so there's really nothing to life but sex and romance and wealth and your career and your politics. So really, while we're desperately trying to soothe ourselves from the reality of death, we're frantically ignoring the reality of death. In fact, we're using those things as a way of neglecting and ignoring the reality of death all the while we're doing those things because we're frantically uh, sensing the urgency of it. You see that? But Christians, they believe in spite of the reality of the shadow of death, because Jesus Christ came into the world, light. Because he died on the cross to suffer the only death that can truly ruin us, there is now no fear of death in our visible reality. We tend to fear death because it's so final. There's a finality to death. Because the finality of death tends to ruin things but not Christians. Verse two, even though the author is literally referring to the darkness of death, he calls it what? He calls it only a shadow. Meaning as terrible, as awful as it is, as painful as it is, there's no more power. It may look, it may appear incredibly dark, but it's not final. There is a dawn. It is just a dawn. It's dark is just before dawn, before light. And so, one, we don't fear death. And two, we're less attached, we're less desperate to find fulfillment through wealth and money and power and romance. You see that? Death doesn't cast a shadow because a light has dawned. The coming of the king, that's the meaning of Christmas. Jesus Christ is born. And so, there's courage to live in the context of our own personal darknesses. Why? Because the reality of Jesus, the hope of Jesus has dawned in your life. Now, what does that mean? Think about what life, light does. Why does the author use this metaphor? What is light? Jesus Christ says, I am the light of the world. What does light do? Light gives you life. Life creates strength. Life builds energy. Life gives you heat. There's warmth in the gospel. Life gives you security. Because you don't see the crime rate drops dramatically during the daytime. Life gives you safety, prevents you from falling, prevents you from tripping. Light enables sight so you can see colors. It gives you real beauty. Light clarifies then. Light enables then. In the darkness, even the shadow of a squirrel may look like a monster. So light brings reality and clarity and truth. It provides direction. It provides vision. Christmas means a light has dawned. That's why we need it. Now, secondly, what is it? The rest of the text is really about when the light of Jesus dawns in your life, that's Christmas, it comes with power, but it's nothing you earn. You can't earn it. It's a gift. That's what it is. What does that mean? In verse 3, 
It says that the people rejoice as if they've received a harvest, as if they're dividing up some, a plunder that they've received. Verse 4, for as in uh, the day of Midian's defeat, what the author is saying here is he's talking about, he's referencing when God delivered his people from the Midianites, it was a neighboring nation that they were at war with through Gideon, but made him, he made Gideon send his entire army back home. Why? To show that victory, that salvation comes only through God's sheer grace. Then you look at verse 5. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment that's rolled in blood, a lot of, of graphic images there, they're destined for burning. They're fuel for the fire. What is he saying? He's saying you can burn it all. You can burn war up. Boots and bloody garments, they're useless because God has won the battle. How? Verse 6. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And he shall be called Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God. Isaiah, a great orator, the greatest in his day. Isaiah says, the Mighty God was born. The mighty God was given to us. It is a gift. He is a gift. Sheer grace of God. Not just to appear to give us a teaching or a vision. He was born. So in 1 John chapter 1, the Apostle John says, That which is from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked at, and, is, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. He's saying the same thing as Isaiah. He's talking about Jesus Christ, the king, who physically came to the world. He literally came to the world. We saw him. We felt him with our hands. Isaiah is saying the mighty God was literally born. He was given to us. Why is that important? Because today, a lot of people don't believe Jesus Christ is God or that he came from a virgin birth. You say, well, who cares about all that? That's all, you know, legendary or folklore. It's fairy tale. Just live a good life. That's all you need. We make a lot of assumptions about God and about life. But the reality is every religion has lots of miracle stories. Whether you're Buddhist, whether you're looking at Muhammad and Islam, whether you're looking at Confucianism, in every one of these stories, whether or not you believe that they actually happen is secondary. It doesn't affect your salvation because it's not dependent. Salvation in those religions depends on what you do. It depends on your record and your merit, but not Christianity. Christianity depends on what Jesus Christ did. It depends on his record, his merit, what he has done on the cross, what he has done uh, for us. That's Christianity. And so every other religion emphasized what's really important is that you obey. That's why the story doesn't matter. Follow the teachings, but not the Christian faith, because in every other religion, salvation is dependent on you, what you do, whether or not you're successful. That's why we're so driven to be successful. It's why we're so desperate for success. It's success in our relationships, success in our parenting. It depends. That's why we're so focused on what neighborhoods we live in or who we know. They're all markers or indicators of success, earthly success. But not the Christian faith. Christianity depends on what Jesus did. His record, unto us a child is born. He is given to us. 
In other words, he did it for us. He was born, it means he lived for us. And he died on the cross for us, for our sins. That means he died for us in our place as our substitute, as our representative. Every other religion, you were saved through teaching. You were saved through obedience. You may have been taught that in the church growing up, that it depends on you. God will be angry if you don't obey. You obey in order to be accepted, but that's counter to actually real Christianity. A Christian is saved by what Jesus has done, by his obedience through his death. So a Christian is wholly accepted by God through Jesus Christ, our king. He was given to us as a gift, and as a, a response, we're shaped into obedience by God's spirit who's given to us. You see that? This passage says that Jesus Christ became a child. Why? On the cross, what do you see? The sky grows dark. Literally, the sky grew dark while Jesus was on the cross. And there he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying there is that I'm now experiencing the ultimate darkness. I'm experiencing the ultimate lostness. I'm experiencing the ultimate utter confusion. God is the center of my life. He is my vision. The Father is everything. And yet on the cross, when he cries out, my God, my God, it was the one time that Jesus Christ didn't refer to God as his Father. And what he's saying is why? I have been disowned. Why? So we could be owned. The Apostle John says we have the right to be called children of God. Jesus Christ gave up his sonship, and so he has been not just physical, he didn't just experience the physical darkness, but on the cross, he was separated from God, forsaken by God, disowned by God, so we could be called children of God. Jesus Christ suffered the ultimate darkness, physically, literally, but also in the soul, as the wrath of God was pouring out on him as a penalty for our sins. In other words, he suffered the ultimate cursed, curse, curse. Why? So we receive, we would receive blessing as a gift. The blessing of God, the presence of God as a gift. You see, if the gospel is just a story about how we should live, then it's not that beautiful. It's not that inspiring. If anything, it's crushing because you can never live up to the teachings of Jesus. You can never live up to uh, Jesus as a, as a, a, a model or as an example, but if the gospel is real, if the gospel is true, if Jesus Christ was born for his people, then it means that he lived for his people and he died for his people, he paid the debt for his people, then that's good news. And that reality awakens light into your life. But only if you come, you, you only, uh, that light would only come if you get that it's a gift by the sheer grace of God that you receive. You see, it doesn't take any work to receive, right? When you are working and when you're trying to obey and you're saying, I'm trying to live the Christian life so God will accept me, you see, you're trying to be the gift. You're trying to give the gift. But to receive a gift doesn't take any work. You just have to know that you need it. You just have to want it. You see that? If the gospel is true, then it's good news. 
But it will only come if you recognize that it is a gift of God, a sheer grace of the mighty God. That's the love of Christ. That's the love of God for you. The only prerequisite is then that you would need to need it, that you would need to receive it as a gift, that you would open it, that you would treasure it as your gift. And when you do, the light of Christ will dawn into your life. Well, how's that going to shape us? I'm going to wrap this up. How's that going to shape us? You see it in the, in the names. You see it in the names. We've already talked about mighty God. That means that we receive salvation, that he is our savior. But what else? One, Jesus is our everlasting father. What does that mean? It means he, he's our king. He's our God, but he's an intimate king. He's an intimate God. Because of the birth of Jesus, you have intimacy with God. So in Luke chapter, in Isaiah chapter 9, he's called Father. In John chapter 4, Jesus is our lover. In John chapter 10, he says he's our good shepherd. In John chapter 17, he calls us brothers. It's why Jesus came as a baby. You see, kings by themselves, in and of themselves, they're unapproachable. But babies by nature, you kiss babies. Ugly babies, cute babies, it doesn't matter. You kiss them, you cuddle with them, you hug them. Every other king says what? I want you to work. I want you to sweat. I want you to suffer for my acceptance. But not Jesus. Jesus Christ was born as a baby. He came vulnerable. How many thrones are there in the world? Not many. How many mangers? There are plenty. Jesus Christ was born in a manger. And he's the only king that says, you can kiss me. You can hug me. You can be intimate with me. You can have a relationship with me. Be personal with me. So Luke chapter 5, he touches the leper. To that sick woman in Mark chapter 5, who touched him, he turns around and calls her daughter. To Jairus' dead child, he says, Talitha kum. You know what that means? It means little girl, I say to you, get up. But in actuality, if you, if you actually take that phrase in the actual language, he's saying, honey, it's time to get up. It's what your mother would say to you after, after making breakfast for you. Jesus Christ is the everlasting father because on the cross he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, I've lost intimacy with you. I've been ruined because I've lost intimacy with the father so that you could have intimacy with the father and you can be healed. So if you're hurting, Christmas can be a beautiful time but can also be a lonely time. No, still the ear of sovereign grace attends the mourner's prayer. Oh, may I ever find access to breathe my sorrows there. You can go to Jesus and breathe your sorrows. You can have a personal relationship with God. Is, is there guilt overriding, under, an overriding undercurrent guilt of your, in your life? Thy mercy seat is open still. That's access. Here let my soul retreat. You can have a personal relationship with God. And Jesus Christ, he came to the world to be real, and today he sends his spirit to make it real. Secondly, Prince of Peace. He's called Prince of Peace. What does that mean? One of the biggest themes in Isaiah chapter 9 is the word peace. There's darkness like a curse. Then there's light like the dawn. 
In verse 1, there's no more gloom. Verse 3, there's joy and plentifulness and victory. Verse 4, there's freedom. Verse 5, it's the end of the war. Every warrior's boot, every garment in blood will be burned. Verse 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. There's justice and righteousness forever. We struggle. We struggle in the church, out of the church, in the city, out of the city, in the burbs, away from the burbs. We struggle with the concept of justice today. So the peace that the author is talking about is not this inner calm or serenity. That's not what he's talking about. The actual word is shalom. Jesus Christ is the prince of shalom. That's joy and fruitfulness and freedom and the end of war and the end of disease and the end of brokenness and and there's perfect justice and there's no oppression and there's righteousness. There's peace, a holistic peace on earth, a wholeness, a whole healing of the earth and prosperity. This is the end of disease, the end of poverty, the end of death once and for all. The birth of Jesus Christ represents the end of the war, an age-old war between God and man healed once and for all because of his coming. And so he brings victory over death on the cross and ushers in a shalom that will wipe away the face of all evil and usher in perfect peace throughout all of humanity as he renews and reestablishes God's people. That's the meaning of Christmas. You see that? But that means that Jesus Christ came into a material world. It means your physical life matters. God came down and he came into the world to break the power of evil, which means we are called to do the same in a sense, to some degree, in your homes, in your private lives, in your workplace, with your coworkers, with your friends. It doesn't matter what you do in your career. God dignifies it all. And you're called to bring peace into the battlefield where there's usually fighting and war, restlessness and injustice and exploitation and oppression. You're called to bring integrity and character and quality. The gospel means salvation, not just to us as individuals. We live in a Western society. Everything's individualized. But this is a proclamation to all of God's people. It was, it was meant to be a corporate celebration to a corporate people, a body of people, it means that we as a people take responsibility to undo the curse of sin, the brokenness of the city. Lastly, he's our wonderful counselor. I mean, wonder, the word wonder, it means a joyfulness towards beauty, marveling in joy at the beauty of something. That means when Jesus Christ was born in you, there's a joy. We so often talk about, oh, we don't want this to be about feelings. Sure. But it can still be a response. So there's salvation under a mighty God. There's intimacy under an everlasting Father. There's shalom under the Prince of Peace. And there's joy. That means regardless of your circumstance, there's an undercurrent of joy, a river of joy. Why? Because our counselor hears us. And he always reminds you who he is and what Christ has done for you. And that 
is your value, and that is your worth. The cross reminds us over time, you want to question the love of God for you? Well, first of all, you would never question the love of God for his own son, Jesus. And what did he send Jesus to do? He sent him to die on the cross. Why? For you. Because Christ treasures you, and to the degree that you trust, that you are treasured by God, that he would send his own son on the cross to die for you, that is the degree that you will treasure him. The cross reminds us of that. We need to hear, we need to hear that because we have overinvested all year in things that don't give us worth, not eternal worth, and yet promised us forever. And we've underinvested in our relationship with God as our source of worth. And so this Christmas, you need to hear Jesus' words. They're healing words. They're comforting words. They're reassuring words over and over, renewing words over and over, no matter where you are. A lot of us, we live in a cloud, under a cloud. We haven't seen the sun in a long time. And, uh, but would you ever question that the sun is, is, exists? Some of us have been living in darkness for a very, very long time. It's a metaphor. Uh, and that darkness is oftentimes proportional to our distance from the Father, at least how you feel. Let today be a reassurance that we can come to the Father, embrace the Father, be renewed in Jesus. And if you trust that, God will do his redeeming work in you. How do we know that? Because Jesus' brokenness, Jesus' darkness that he experienced, it brought about ultimate salvation. It brought about ultimate redemption. And so God promises then to use your darkness and your brokenness to do that as well. Christmas means the end of death. A light has dawned, a new life. That means that if there's brokenness, there can be healing. If there's a weakness in your life, if you're just, just utterly in weakness, there can be strength. If there's foolishness, oh, I've just lived terribly there can be wisdom in your life. That's what it means to live in light, a light that is dawned. So let's celebrate that. We're gonna respond in song. May this light be yours today. Let's pray together.